I want you to turn to the book of Jonah. About 25 years ago, there was a famous murder trial in Chicago of two Jewish boys, Loeb and Leopold, who had murdered little Bobby Frank. And when they were arrested, the family hired to defend them the noted atheist Clarence Darrow. And when Darrow was coming to the summing up of the evidence before the case was presented to the jury, he spoke of a certain person's testimony that seemed to have had a little variation in it. And he turned to the jury and said, any man that would be fool enough to believe that man's testimony would be fool enough to believe that a whale swallowed Jonah. Well, there were quite a few Christians on the jury, and there were some of them that evidently were fool enough to believe that the whale uh, did swallow Jonah, and they were fools. They convicted their, his client of murder. Now, people have laughed at the book of Jonah for many years. In fact, there are people that laugh at it today. Every once in a while, you will see some minister who's seeking publicity. It's always sure of publicity. You can make publicity if you make some statement of disbelief. I once talked to newspaper men in Philadelphia about the fact that they once in a while came to my church, but I said, you never put what I say in the papers on Monday. And they said, it's not news. Yesterday, for instance, you were preaching on the doctrine of the virgin birth. That's not news. I said, suppose I denied it. And the newspaper man sort of looked up. He said, brother, that would be front page news, Associated Press, coast to coast, front page in every paper in the United States. I said, sure, that's it. It's not news to believe, but it is news to deny. And you'll find people, modern ministers today, Methodist, Baptist, Presbyterians, that'll talk about the myths of Jonah, and that this is a, something that's given to us as a parable and so on. Well, I'm going to present it to you as solid fact, because if I do not believe that the whale swallowed Jonah, then I do not believe Jesus Christ when he said, as Jonah was three days and nights in the belly of the whale, so shall the Son of Man be three days and nights in the heart of the earth. Now, in order to understand this great book, let's find out, first of all, what it means, and I have to translate the geography to you. Remember this, that the Jews were 100% super patriots, and they had just been in trouble with people from the east of them, and Nineveh was a great city, and they were afraid that Nineveh would send troops and would control them. And all of a sudden, God said to Jonah, Jonah, you go and preach to Nineveh, and I'll send a great revival there. And Jonah, being a super patriot, started in the other direction. Let me translate this. And the word of the Lord came to Solomon Epstein in Atlanta, Georgia, and said, Solomon Epstein, arise and go to Berlin, that great city in Germany that produced Hitlerism, and you go and preach to it, and I will make the Nazis rise again, and they'll be a great power. And so Solomon Epstein went to San Francisco and bought a one-way ticket for Australia. Now that's exactly the geography of the book of Jonah. It's the Jew who didn't want the Nazis to rise again, starting in the opposite direction for the ends of the earth. And this is what happened. God said to Jonah, arise and go to Nineveh and cry against it, for its wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah rose up to flee unto Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Now brother, you start fleeing from the presence of the Lord and you've got your work cut out for you. Hadn't Jonah ever read the Psalms? Though I make my bed in hell, thou art there. Though I take the wings of the morning and fly to the uttermost parts of the earth, thou art there. I once was crossing the Pacific Ocean, 
and I was on the old dollar line steamship. You bought a ticket around the world, and you could get off at any port to stay two weeks or four weeks, and every two weeks a ship comes around, and you merely make your reservation ahead and go. So I'd gotten off at Honolulu, and I was preaching in Honolulu and in the islands for two weeks. Two weeks later, I got on the next ship that came through on its way to Yokohama. And the ship had come in in the morning about 8 o'clock, and all the tourists had been off for the day, and the ship was to leave that night about 8 or 9 o'clock. So I walked on board and said to the chief dining room steward, now put me at a table where I'll have some pleasant companions. He said, now there's a doctor and his wife and I think her sister. And he said, the three of them are there at a table. And he said, I'll put you at that table. He said, they're very fine people. So when supper time came, I went in, introduced myself. In fact, the steward introduced me to them and sat me there. And I was very, very careful not to let them know I was a preacher. Uh, I like them to, you know, if you tell them first off, they put on a mask and try to make you think they're a whole lot better than you are. But let them cuss a while and tell a few off-color stories. Then you tell them you're a preacher, and brother, you've, they've had their guard down, you can come in and really sock them. And so we talked through supper, and they didn't have the remotest idea that I was preaching. We talked about this and that. And when we were through, we walked up on the deck, and as we were going, walking along the deck in the moonlight, I said to them, where are you going? They had asked me what I was doing, and I said, well, I'm going to give some lectures in Chuyo University in Tokyo. And um, uh, I said, what are you doing? And one of the women said, oh, we're going around the world. I said, what for? Oh, to get away from it all. I said, but you brought it all with you. She said, that's the hell of it. Now, you see, I say this because it'll make you realize that you can never run away from God. You can't do it. You cannot run away from God. Wherever you go, you're going to take your conscience with you. You're going to take your own history with you. You're going to take your memory with you. And you cannot get away from God. And here was Jonah trying it. What was the name of the ship? It doesn't say, but I like to think that the name of the ship was, good name for ship, the wings of the morning. And I like to think it was that because in the Psalms it says, Though I take the wings of the morning and fly to the uttermost parts of the earth, thou art there. Now, I want you to note this great fact about Jonah. He rose up to flee from the presence of the Lord. And he went down to Joppa and he found the ship that was going to Tarshish. Now, if you look on your maps of the Bible, you'll find that they call a place Tarshish that's just outside Gibraltar on the Atlantic Ocean on the coast of Spain. But I'm quite sure that that was not the real Tarshish. This was merely the jump-off point for Tarshish. Because in Hebrew, the root Tarshish means tin land. And the only tin land in the ancient world was Britain. 99%, in fact, probably 100% of all the tin that's used in the bronze of the Roman sculptures and the buildings of Greece and the Mediterranean was mined in England and taken in rowboats down the ocean and through the Mediterranean. And so Jonah was really off to the uttermost parts of the earth. He was really trying to get away from God. Nineveh was in this direction, and Tarshish was up there. And he said, I'm going to go so far that they can never get me back to Nineveh. But you see, when God has his hand on a man, God is going to keep his hand on that man. Well, he went to run away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord sent a great wind unto the sea. Now, I want you to notice this verse, this line. He found a ship going to Tarshish, and he paid the fare thereof. I always like that verse, because there's a great deal in it. He paid the fare thereof, and there's no record in the Bible that he got any money back for the unused portion of his ticket. If you run away from God, you'll always pay your own expenses, and you'll never get where you think you're going. I've dealt with young people 
who'd broken their homes and marriages and started it off in another direction. They said, well, now we're going to find happiness. But they didn't. You see people that say, well, I'm going in this direction and get it. But they don't. They, he paid the fare thereof. And you run away from God, and I don't care who you are and what direction you're going, if you run away from God, you're going to pay the fare, and you're never going to get delivered. You can be sure of this. This is a law of God. I never think of this phrase, he paid the fare, thinking of Moses' mother. Somebody say, May, what on earth connection is there between Jonah and Moses' mother? Well, there's a line in the story of Moses' mother that's just the opposite of this. You remember Moses' mother believed God, and she took and made a little ark of bulrushes for the baby. And the baby, Moses, is the only baby in the Bible whom God says is beautiful. Now, every mother, of course, thinks that her baby is beautiful. The Germans have a proverb, Jäger Mutterskind ist schön, every mother's child is beautiful. And that's true, a mother looks at her little baby, and even though it looks like a beast that has been left too long in the frigid air, nevertheless, it's a beautiful baby. It's beautiful, it's beautiful, it's her baby, and it's beautiful. But the Bible says twice that Moses was a beautiful baby. You read this when Stephen was giving his great address just before he was killed as the first Christian martyr. He said, now when Moses was born, he was exceeding fair. And then in the book of Hebrews in chapter 11, it says Moses was hid of his parents because they saw he was a proper child. And so, why was this baby beautiful? Well, it makes it hang together, the whole story, because if it had been an ugly little wrinkled beak, Pharaoh's daughter would have said, oh, how ugly, throw it into the Nile to the crocodile. But the baby was beautiful, beautiful, and this was bait for the world. See, the world always wants something that's beautiful. A person that's born photogenic already has, always has a much harder row to hoe than somebody that's born uh, slightly off-center. Uh, this is true, you know, and you can thank God if, you're, if you don't look like some of the Hollywood starlets. You can thank God for it, because if you do, the world makes a very high bid. And a person that's born with nothing more than the physical proportions and so on is very frequently in much greater danger of temptation. Well, Moses was a beautiful baby, and this was bait for Pharaoh's daughter, and so she called Miriam, who was standing by, and said, go get one of the Jewish mothers to nurse this child. And the baby's own mother came. And she looked at that baby. Now, if, 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 if Pharaoh's daughter had said, you're a wicked woman and you're probably conniving and this is disobedience to my father's command, but I'll spare this child if you let my sword bearer cut your hand off. Moses' mother would have been willing to have both hands cut off to save the life of her boy. But that's not the way God does. When you're in God's will, you don't never pay your own expenses, and you always get where you're going. But when you're running away from God, you always pay your own expenses, and you never get where you're going. And so in the story of Moses, we find that the woman said, the princess said to Moses' mother, you nurse the child, and I will pay your wages. Isn't that marvelous? And so the mother got her own baby back in her arms, and what would she have rather done than anything else in the world? She would have rather, if someone had said, what would you rather do than anything else in the world? Oh, give me back my baby and let me have my baby next to my breast. And Pharaoh's daughter says, you get the thing you want most and you get paid for it besides. Now let me tell you, if you do the will of God, you will always have the Lord's will. And you will very definitely have God take care of you. But if you run away from God, you will always pay your own expenses and you will never get delivered. A few years ago in Philadelphia, someone was talking about a certain young man who'd gone into the brokerage business. 
And somebody said, perhaps we ought to join a little business, because after all, remember, his father was so godly in the Christian businessmen and so on, and this boy is a little far away. And I said, brother, don't invest any money with him. I said, invest it with an atheist. He may make some money for you. But the boy who is a child of believing parents and who's running away from God, God has to smack him down. Of this you can be absolutely sure. The wicked may flourish like the green bay tree, but the child of the covenant that's out of the will of God, God is going to have to smash him. And this is what happened with Jonah. He was the true child of the covenant. He was out of the will of God, running away from God, and God had to make him pay his own expenses and then get him thrown overboard. The Lord sent out a great wind, and there was a mighty tempest in the sea, so that the ship was like to be broken. And then the mariners were afraid. The Hebrew word is the salt, S-A-L-T-S. You see, Jonah was a Jew and traveling, and he undoubtedly came down as a tourist and paid his wages to the, paid the fare to the captain of the ship, walked up and down and listened to the talk, made himself very much a traveler. You can always tell the people that haven't traveled much. If you have friends that ever went to France once, they probably let you know it for a year after. Merci beaucoup, je vous aime, très bien, and tried to show a little bit of French that they did not know. Uh, and when Jonah wrote this, this prophecy, Jonah added to it all the way through in Hebrew. Everything in it is absolutely nautical, as though Jonah would say, you see, I'm a traveler, I know. I know the difference between starboard and ports. And he, he really went after it. And all these details are here that show the authenticity of the story. The mariners were afraid. It says they cried every man to his own God. You see, you have no right to cry every man to his own God. Someone says, why, this is America. Every man has a right. That's not true. Well, Dr. Barnhouse, don't you believe in religious freedom? Yes, but what do I mean by religious freedom? By religious freedom, I mean the right of every man to go to hell in his own way or to go to heaven in God's way. Don't ever think for one second that every man in Atlanta has a right to tell God how he's come to heaven. This is not true. There is one way to God, and there are not two ways to God. Fortunately, Jesus lived before Emily Post. And when the woman at the well said, which is the place to offer sacrifice, at Mount Gerizim or at Jerusalem? Our fathers say Mount Gerizim, and the Jews say at Jerusalem. Now, if Jesus had belonged to the greater Jerusalem council of Jews, Protestants, and Catholics, and meeting together for a fellowship of faith, he would probably have said, well, after all, there's a syncretism, and there's something good in all religions, and we're trying to build a better world. But what did Jesus say? Woman, you worship, you know not what we know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. Well, how did Jesus dare be so intolerant? Oh, Jesus was tolerant, tolerant. He said, Jerusalem, you can go to hell if you want. How often would I have gathered thee to my bosom as a hen gathereth her chicks, but ye would not. And in that day, he said, it will be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah than for you. You shall be cast down to hell. Don't forget that Paul is not the Bible teacher of hell. The doctrine of hell is not Paul's doctrine or an Old Testament doctrine. The doctrine of eternal punishment and damnation is Jesus' doctrine. If you're going to study the doctrine of hell, you get it in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John from the teachings of Jesus. Any hope that there might be for those who have never heard the gospel comes from Paul, never from Jesus. And in the balance of truth, we simply say, Lord, you're going to do it in your way. And we bow before your way, and we know you never make a mistake. But don't forget, dear friends, that nobody has a right to pray except through Jesus Christ. 
If you see on television somebody walk up to the table and say, God bless this food, amen, that is not a Christian prayer, and God does not receive it. And in school, they say to our young people, now, you mustn't pray in Jesus' name. This offends the Jews. Well, I'd rather offend the Jews than Jesus Christ. And I'm not so sure that it offends the Jews. I had a meeting in Pueblo, Colorado, and it was held under the Council of Churches of Pueblo, Colorado, in, the big, in a big theater during what they call Holy Week. Uh, the other 51, I guess, aren't holy, but at any rate, you know what I mean, Palm Sunday to Good Friday. And I preached the gospel and preached it, and the Methodist minister wrote a letter to the paper, and they published it in the front page, and he chided me for being so outspoken. He said, after all, the Council of Churches includes the Jewish rabbi, and for Dr. Barnhouse to come and say that there's only one way for salvation, that this goes beyond modern liberal thought and so on. And there it was, and the, it crowded the theater to the doors, you know. They all came to see what it was that the Methodist minister was knocking. But the next day, lo and behold, the Jewish rabbi wrote a letter and said, don't ever say such a thing. We Jews respect Dr. Barnhouse because he stands up and says what we be he believes, and he does. we do not respect the person that compromises his faith for fear of hurting anybody else. And I always rejoice in that fact. And don't ever be afraid uh, to stand up and be counted. And all these people that cry every man to his own God say, it's all right. You can keep on praying, but God is not hearing your prayers because your God is really the devil under another name. For there is only one God, true God, and that is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. When a politician says, and God bless our country, you know his radio time's running out. If you're ever listening to radio or television and hear a politician named God, you know his radio time's about to be cut off. See, he has to put that in in the last moment. And it is not the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ he's talking about. They cried every man to his own God. And it goes on to say that Jonah was gone down into the sides of the ship and he lay and was fast asleep. This is one of the saddest sentences in the Bible. He was fast asleep. You know, they talk about sleeping like a baby. But don't ever talk about sleeping like a baby to your young father who's raised several children because he knows some nights they don't sleep and he has to get up and walk up and down with them. Sleep like a baby? No, 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 no. Sleep like a top? Well, maybe, because the top rolls off in the corner, but it's inanimate. If you really want a figure of speech, say, sleeping like a fundamentalist preacher running away from God. See, that's exactly what Jonah was. He was running away from God, and he had seared his conscience. And he was out of the will of God. He says, God Almighty, you want me to go there and preach at Nineveh, and you say you'll send a big revival, but I don't want those people converted. I'm not going to do it. It would not be what I want. I don't want this blessing of another race than my own race, and it cannot be, and I'm going to go the other way. And he went down into the ship, and he fell fast asleep, and he had his conscience seared as with a hot iron. Brother, let me tell you, it's a terrible thing when a man gets out of the will of God and starts to run away from God. He can even be quiet and calm and say to people, well, I'm not bothered. Well, brother, you're going to be someday. So the shipmaster came to him and shook him and said, What meanest thou, O sleeper? Arise and call upon thy God, if so be that God will hear us and that we perish not. It's a terrible thing when the ship captain, an unsaved ship captain, has to call upon the Christian to get to acting like a Christian. Every once in a while it happens. You'll hear the world chide the church. Why doesn't the church do this and do that? And oh, how terrible it is to have to chide the Christian for doing what he ought to do. Why aren't we doing what we ought to do? Why is it that the church is the last to understand social righteousness? 
Why is it that they're the most uneasy in their conscience and not doing God's will in some of the most important things in the social life of the world today? Why is it, oh, I tell you, Jonah's fast asleep with scar tissue over his conscience and God is going to have to take him and throw him overboard. And God is going to have to do that to us if we continue to make Christianity a little copyright patented thing that belongs to just our little group. Look thou. And they said everyone to his fellow, Come now and let us cast lots that we may know for whose cause this thing has come upon us. Now this was quite right. They were going, I don't know whether they'd draw straws or flip the coin or did anything like that. But you see, there's a verse in the Bible that a lot of people don't know is there. How many people are there that know that the Bible says man throws the dice, but God makes the spots come up? Now, this is true, you see. Man can throw the dice, but God makes the spots come up. That's Proverbs chapter 16. Man throws the dice, but God makes the spots come up. Matthew 16. Proverbs. Proverbs 16, 33. Now, I'll admit that's my own translation. But, you see, the way it is in the King James Version is this. The lot is cast into the lap, but the whole disposing thereof is of the Lord. Now, in the ancient world, they gambled with a little bone out of a sheep's knee, because every sheep has in his knee a little bone that has six points in it, so that when you throw the bone down, it falls in a different pattern. It can fall in six different patterns. And 4,000 years ago, they were saying, roll them bones. And they, it's only in the last 50 years that they have dice so accurate, made with calipers, that they're not uh, false dice. But they used to throw bones, and naturally these men were dressed in long dresses, and they would squat down Turk fashion, put out their knees, and they immediately had a flat flap, and they threw these bones down onto the woolen cloth. And it fell in one of many different ways. And it says, man casteth the lot into the lap, but the whole disposing thereof is of the Lord. Which means exactly man throws the dice, but God makes the spots come up the way he wants. You can never cheat God. If you don't think that he's running all things, you just don't know God. God has planned all things, even down to the fall of the dice for every gamble or every flip of a coin. God knows exactly how the cards are going to come, how the tea leaves are going to be. And the devil tries to make you think you can find out the future in some way. And the devil always says, yes, 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 to your desire. Have you ever seen a Ouija board? Well, do you know what Ouija means? Did you know that Ouija means yes, yes? O-U-I, as in French, oui, 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 and J-A, ya, ya, in German. And Ouija is oui, ya, yes, yes, in French and German. And if you try to get things from the devil, the devil will always say yes, yes to anything you want. You find people that do this. They say, well, I'm going to flip a coin, and if the coin says heads, I'll do this. And if it says tails, I don't want to do this, but if it says tails, I'll do it. So it falls tails, and you say, well, I'll try again. <laughs> ah, tails, they heads, it came out heads, you see, and I said I'd take it to heads, and they follow what they want to do themselves. You can kid yourselves this way. Well, Jonah... The whole story goes into high gear now. They jumped around him and they said, Where are you from? Where are you going? What are you doing? What are you doing? How does this happen? What is it? And they all talked at once. And he said to them, I am a Hebrew and I fear Jehovah, which made the sun and the dry land, the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid. Now, why were they afraid? 
Well, do you think for one minute the whole Eastern world didn't know about the Jews? Do you think that Pharaoh's army could have been drowned without the whole world learning about it? Do you think that Jericho could have fallen down without people being up on a mountain behind a tree looking at it and come down and seeing what happened? Do you think that the Jews could have come in and had all the victories they had at the time of Samson and Jephthah and Gideon without the world knowing about it? And the news got up to Sidon and Tyre and the sailors, and they carried it all over. There's a tribe out there, there's a tribe out there, and they've got a God, and that God, that Jehovah, that God of the Jews, he, he destroyed Pharaoh's army. That God's got more on the ball than any other God. And so when these men heard that he was a Jew and that he was running away from the presence of the Lord, then they said unto him, What shall we do to thee? Now if you want to know how nasty and mean a man out of the will of God can be, you notice how he took the bit in his teeth and said, I'll tell you what you do, you throw me overboard. Now if he had said, turn the ship around and start back for shore so I can obey God, and they had turned the ship around, why right away they wouldn't have had to lose the masts and the freight and so on. And God would have sent the calm immediately, but he said, throw me overboard. In other words, I'd rather die than do the will of God. And there's some of you people that way too. And you've got to face the fact that there's some things in life that you'd say, well, I'd rather die. I know it's God's will that things be done this way, and I know it's Christian that things be done that way, but we don't want them Christian. We want them our own Southern tradition way. And don't forget that fact. And you can be as blind as Jonah and running away like Jonah, and you can put scar tissue over your conscience, and you can say, throw me overboard. But God is running his universe, and don't forget this fact. And we've got to face these things. And God will never allow, even though you put scar tissue over your conscience, God will never allow you to be quiet and at peace while you're out of the will of God and running away from what he wants. Well, they said, take him up, take me up, and cast me into the sea, but nevertheless they worked hard to bring it to land. And finally they cried to Jehovah. Now look in verse 14. I believe that every sailor on board that ship got saved. I expect to see this crew in heaven when I get there. Because you discover in verse 14 the crew all begins to pray, not now each man to his own God, but each man to Jehovah. Wherefore they cried unto Jehovah, and they said, We beseech thee, O Jehovah, we beseech thee, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not upon us innocent blood, for thou, O Jehovah, hast done as it pleased thee. So they took up Jonah, and they cast him forth into the sea, and the sea ceased from her raging. Then the men feared Jehovah exceedingly, and offered blood sacrifice unto Jehovah, and made vows. And here they were, Gentiles, who were saved, just exactly like Naaman the Gentile was saved, just like Ruth the Moabitess was saved. These people turned to Jehovah, and I expect to see them in heaven. Now the Lord had prepared a great fish, and now we come to the last point I'm going to make. Someone says, now, Dr. Barnhouse, don't you know enough about whales to know that a whale can't swallow anything bigger than a sardine? To which I say, how many whales' throats have you looked down? You know, if you were going to write a doctor's thesis on chickens, it'd be very easy. In the backyard, you could put up a pen for white menorcas, and, and you could put one up for Rhode Island Reds, and you could put one up for Cochins and Buff Cochins, and you could make a real study of chickens in your own backyard. But if you were going to write a doctor's thesis on whales, where would you keep them? You don't have a big enough swimming pool. Now, you see, 50 years ago, people thought that there was no whale any bigger than that which could swallow a sardine. Now, as far as I'm concerned, that if whales had been that way, they're not, I'll show you in a minute, I would still have believed the Bible. 
because my God is so great that if he wanted to, he could send a whale with wings from Savannah and it could come down Memorial Street and turn, make a turn on Moreland Avenue and come and swallow this church with everybody in it and then fly to sea again. If God wanted to do it, he could do it. You see, I'm so sorry for people that have a little God. God created man in his own image. And then man turned his back on God and has created a God in his own image and he's always in trouble with him. And man is in trouble with a little God who can't do anything, but my God can do anything. He made the sun, the moon, and the stars. He made the sea and he walked on it. He made iron and the law of gravity and he made the iron swim. He made the sun stand still. And if somebody says, well, you don't believe that, don't you know anything about astronomy? Well, I know more about God than I do about astronomy. And anybody that knows more about God than he does about astronomy isn't worried since God is the author of astronomy. And you know, greater than creating the stars, God created the astronomer. And that's ourselves, and he made us in his own image. And how wonderful this is. Oh, how marvelous. But you see, even from a human point of view, the miracle is not that the whale couldn't have swallowed Jonah. Because today we know in science, we know that there are at least 20 different kinds of whales. There's what you might call Great Dane whales and Pekingese whales and Cocker Spaniel whales and all kinds and sizes of whales. There was a man named Frank Bullen, B-U-L-L-E-N, who was a medical doctor in London about 1905 or 6. And he went down near the docks to deliver a baby in the middle of the night. And about 3 o'clock in the morning he came out. And as he reached the corner, some men, a press gang, that were trying to get kidnapped sailors to go on board a whaling vessel, threw a blanket over him and put chloroform under his nose. And when he became conscious, he was on board a ship and it was off for a two-year cruise. They couldn't get sailors to enlist, so the captain paid the press gang so much and they kidnapped waterfront characters and took them on board and they happened to get a medical doctor. And for the first time, a medical doctor was able, a scientifically trained man, to observe whales at close quarters. And in his book, The Cruise of the Cachalot, Cachalot means the sperm whale, he tells the story of how they harpooned whales and they always dragged the whale to the back of the ship and they would keep it there for about 24 or 48 hours till it was completely dead before they directed it on the back of the ship and began the flensing process of reducing it to its component parts. Now, as they did this, you see the whale, they let it die there because its movements were violent. If you've ever seen a chicken with its head cut off, it'll jump 20 feet sometimes. And so it is that a whale, when it's dying, it can be very destructive. And it always vomits. It always emptied its belly. Well, it, Frank Bullen tells the story how there was a great storm just as they saw some magnificent whales. And they shot their harpoon into amazingly beautiful specimen. And they finally brought it to the back of the ship. And the storm was approaching in such a way that the captain had to choose between cutting the rope and letting the whale go adrift and running ahead of the storm to be safe or to deck the whale up, to derrick it up on the back of the ship before it was completely dead. So they got it up and they tied great cords around it to keep its, whale, its tail from knocking down the stanchions and so on. And finally, as it was there dying, it regurgitated. And Frank Bowen stood with, by this whale and out from its mouth came a piece of squid fish which he measured with a tape measure. It was eight feet long by six feet wide by six feet high, 350 cubic feet in one bite, as big as a bunch of Jonas like, tied together like a bunch of asparagus. So don't ever tell me that a whale can't swallow anything bigger than a 
herring. The miracle was not that Jonah was swallowed. The miracle was that Jonah was not digested. Now, I'll show you how important this is, and the whole Bible narrative hangs on this fact. Now, if you ever got to Narragansett or any of the other whaling ports, I believe Richmond, California is the last one left in the United States from which they do whaling expeditions. But if you go there and get a quart of gastric juice from the whale's belly, that acid is so strong that it will dissolve shark skin, which is the strongest product known in nature. And yet it did not dissolve Jonah. Why didn't the acid dissolve Jonah? Simply because of the fact that God Almighty was using it as a picture of the fact that death would not dissolve Jesus Christ. I want you to turn to the book of Acts in chapter 2. And Peter is speaking on the day of Pentecost. And here is the great fact spoken there on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. Where he says in verse 25, David speaketh concerning Jesus, I foresaw the Lord always before my face. For he is on my right hand that I should not be moved. Therefore did my heart rejoice, and my tongue was glad. Moreover, my flesh shall rest in hope, because thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, neither wilt thou suffer thine holy one to see corruption. And then he says, now David was corrupted, and his grave is here. He wasn't talking about, about his own body, but in verse 30 he says, being a prophet, Verse 31, seeing this before, spake of the resurrection of Christ, that his soul was not left in hell, neither did his flesh see corruption. So the great miracle is that Jesus' body was not decayed. I once asked a great surgeon who had done a, a spinal transplant, who had opened the man's calf of his leg and had cut a piece of his shin out and had sewn it to his spine, in order to stop tuberculosis of the spine, I said, why can't you get the bone from somebody else? He said, I'll tell you, doctor, death is too fast for us. He said, I suppose we could take a piece from another man's leg and put it in a man here, providing that the man had had an accident and was brought into the hospital, and we knew that at 2.30 we were going to amputate his leg. And he said that at 2.35 we were going to take this man and operate on him. We might make it, he said, but even then it would be touch and go. And I would hate to put a piece of bone out of this man's body into this man's body. Now he said we can do it in blood transfusions and we can do it in corneal transplants. He said, but he said the body is so arranged that when the heart stops beating, it's almost as though there were regiments and army corps and companies and battalions of germs of decay and disintegration from the toenail to the hair that leap out to destroy the body and the body begins to go back to death in a matter of seconds from the time death comes but this process did not happen to jesus and that's the thing that said here this is one of the reasons why we know that jesus was born as a virgin and that jesus did not have a human father and that his body was not entirely like our body we're in the flesh but he was made in the likeness of sinful flesh but it was not a body that could be corrupt decay. And so we have this great picture. Jesus said, a wicked and an adulterous generation seeketh after a sign, and there shall no other sign be given but the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the whale, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And here God Almighty gives you in this picture the fact that Jesus Christ, it was not possible that he should be holden of death. Now, just before I pronounce the benediction, I want to show you in the book of Jonah one more phrase. I could speak on this for two hours, 
a series of lectures. Jonah was put out by the whale and he landed preaching. And it's a wonderful thing because in chapter 3, you have a verse here, and if there's any preacher in this audience, I want you to look very closely at Jonah 3. Because the Lord cried unto the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise and go to Nineveh, that great city, and preach unto it the preaching that I bid thee. Now there's grace. Why didn't God put Jonah aside and choose somebody else? Why didn't God say, Jonah, you didn't want to do it? I'll raise up Habakkuk and I'll have him go. You don't get the reward. God says, Jonah, I've called you for a job and I'm going to have you do that job. And let me tell you, friends, right here tonight, I don't care who you are or what, you're done, what you've done, God can use you. I don't care if you've made a wreck of your life, if you've committed every sin in the book, if you've been married and divorced and married and divorced and married and divorced. And the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time. And the word of the Lord came to Donald Barnhouse the 72nd time and the 1,002nd time. Oh, what a wonderful fact. God is the greatest junk dealer that this world has ever seen. He deals in second-hand merchandise. And you and I are the living proof. And it doesn't make any difference what you've done. You lift your eyes to God and say, Lord, you knew what I was before you started to save me. He knoweth our frame and remembereth that we are dust. And God Almighty says, yes, I know, and I love you, and I'm going to lift you. And you can go out now, and you can be a blessing for me. In spite of your past, your past is under the blood. Your present is in the power of the Holy Spirit, and your future is in my hands. And you're mine, and I love you, and I'm going to deal with you, and I'm going to use you. But my heart is torn, lest there be somebody here tonight who has bought his ticket and paid his fare and is on the outward journey and has not yet come to the place where he let God throw him overboard and make the return trip in the whale. God will make you come back in the whale if you make him do it. But if you say, oh, Lord God, I, I put me back, stop the boat, send a helicopter, take me back to shore, and I will do thy will, he'll do it. God will get you off the wreck. God will take you back if you let him. But oh, don't persist in thinking that you can get away from the presence of God. Don't think that you can run away from God. You can't do it, you can't do it, you can't do it. And Jonah paid the fare thereof. And he never got delivered. And he never got any money back for the unused portion of his ticket. Christian, 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 don't, don't run away from the will of God. Just say, Lord, here I am. And I'm so many years old and I've wasted so many efforts. What am I to do? I come to thee now, Lord. And here I am, empty-handed. What am I going to do? And he says, hold them out, my child, Now fill them. And then you start working for me and witnessing for me. And God will bless you and God will use you. Shall we bow in prayer? Lord our God, we pray thee now that thou wilt go with us as we go. If there should be anyone here who has not been born again, we ask thee to accompany them with restlessness and give them no peace till they rest in Christ. We pray thee for any Christian that's trying to run away from thee. Lord, may thy word come to them tonight, the second time, or the thousand and second time. And this time, may they listen to thee and not grieve thee any farther. Oh, God. And unto thee be the glory and the honor and the dominion and the power and the majesty and the might. And all these things we pray to thee in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Now tonight I want to take you to a story in the book of Acts. First of all I want to tell you why I'm using this topic. I am increasingly convinced by God that Christians must be prepared for disaster.
I believe that disaster is coming, catastrophe to the United States, that we're going to be bombed, that a hundred cities will disappear in an atomic blast, and that the enemy will come upon us and do these things. I am not concerned about any of Khrushchev's apologies or uh, maneuvers. They're atheists, and we cannot believe them. They are bent on the control of the world, and they are moving in this direction. Now, the Bible says there should be wars and rumors of wars. See that you do not trouble. And we are not troubled, but we must be prepared. Because if a bomb should come upon us and you're spiritually unprepared, it's going to be a very terrible thing. And I believe that one of three things is going to happen to every one of us in the next few years if the Lord doesn't come. And we have no guarantee of this. Either that a bomb will hit us directly and we'll be in heaven. That's to go to heaven in high gear. And I'd rather go in high gear than by low gear to cancer. Uh, high gear by a bomb would be much preferable. And I'm not afraid of going to heaven. Then secondly, if we're not hit exactly, it may hit just close enough so that it'll, it'll all fall out on us and burn us and our flesh will drop off our bones and we'll be horribly mangled. And this happened to thousands of people in Japan, and it will undoubtedly happen to millions here. Or thirdly, if it's completeness and doesn't come anywhere nearer you than Newport News, where our Navy is, or Houston, where some of our oil is, if it doesn't come there, you will suddenly thousands of refugees from the places it has hit come live with you for the rest of your life, eight people moving into your house with you. And the places that are not hit will receive the refugees from the places that have been hit. Now, this is not a pretty picture. And yet, nevertheless, never has any nation so richly deserved it. And my text comes from the book of Acts, where Paul was in the storm, where we read this in Acts chapter 27. This very night there stood by me an angel of God to whom I belong and whom I serve. Verse 20 and 22. And when neither sun nor stars appeared for many a day, and no small tempest hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. And it was in those circumstances that he said, Now I exhort you to be of good cheer. Now isn't that a remarkable contrast? For there he says in verse 20, When neither sun nor stars appeared for many a day, and no small tempest lay upon us, listen, all hope of being saved was at last abandoned. And it was at the moment when all hope was abandoned that Paul stood up and said to the crowd, Don't worry, be of good cheer. Well, what do you mean the idea of be of good cheer? We're going to be wrecked. Be of good cheer, he said. Now, Paul had advised them not to sail. If we read the early part of the chapter, we remember that they got into a little port, and it wasn't commodious for winter. It was just entirely third-class accommodations, and they didn't want to have this. And a lot of the people said, oh, let's go on to a nicer place. We don't want to spend the winter in the sticks when Miami Beach is down the coast. Let's go down the coast. It was their idea. We want to get to a more commodious place. And Paul says, if you do, you're going to be wrecked. And the centurion and the captain of the ship believed the crowd. And when there was a little soft wind for a few days, they said, let's go. So they went. And then it was that the storm came. Now, Paul knew that the storm was coming, and they did not know. It's just as today, the believer in Jesus Christ knows what is going to happen in the world. And the unbeliever does not know. 
but the unbeliever is never going to accept our advice. We don't expect it. Yet in Amos chapter 3, verse 7, it says, Surely the Lord God will do nothing, but he revealeth his secret unto the servants, the prophets. I'm quite sure that I know infinitely more about foreign affairs than gotten than Mr. McMillan and Mr. Dulles, because I know the Bible. And I know what God has prophesied. I know that the Jews are being saved and put back in their land, and that ultimately they are going to control. I'm quite sure that the Bible teaches beyond any question that there never will be any peace on this world until it's brought by the Jews. The United Nations cannot bring peace. God has his plan. There are four things that are out of place in this world. The devil is out of place. He ought to be in hell. The church is out of place. We ought to be in heaven. The Jew is out of place. He ought to be in Palestine. And Christ is sitting on the Father's throne instead of on his own throne. And he says in the book of Revelation, to him that overcometh will I grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I also overcame, and am set down in my Father's throne. I do not think that anybody can know anything very much about the Word of God and not know that God has made definite prophecies concerning Israel and that the key to all history is in Israel. You know, I started out in life to be a professor of history. And I spent seven years in Europe in the university preparing, and I came home and I taught history for two years in the University of Pennsylvania. Then I decided I didn't want to give the rest of my life to teaching several hundred young fellows, most of whom wanted to get a C passing mark so they could go on to play football and graduate and forget all about it, and the remaining few who wanted to get A's so that they could be professors of history for the next generation. And that's what finally caused me to resign from the faculty of the university and go into preaching, because I wanted to do something that would really reach people. But because of my training, I cannot look at the Bible apart from history, and I cannot look at history apart from the Bible. The two go together. They're both God. God is the author of the Word, and God has been the author of history. This is why he can say there shall be wars and rumors of wars, see that you be not troubled, because God knows what he's doing. He has a plan. And God's plan is to convince the universe that there's no good in the human race. See, this is the purpose of history. This is why God allows history to drag on century after century, and why he allows General Mao in China to kill 200 million people, and why he allowed Khrushchev and Stalin to kill hundreds of thousands of people. And this is why God allows all the evils that are in our day. It has to be demonstrated that man cannot save himself by education, Man cannot save himself by science. Man cannot save himself even by Christianity. Man can be saved individually. And there isn't one verse in the Bible that says that society is going to be saved by anything other than the divine intervention in the second coming of Jesus Christ. Therefore, we face the word of God and we know that the wreck is going to come. There's an interesting story about Dwight L. Moody and the great preacher in Boston, Henry Ward Beecher. Henry Ward Beecher was asked why he did not cooperate with Moody in his evangelistic campaigns. Because just as there are a lot of highbrow preachers that won't cooperate with Billy Graham today, so in the days of Moody there were a lot of highbrow preachers that wouldn't cooperate with Dwight L. Moody. And Henry Ward Beecher put it this way. He said, well, you see, I and Mr. Moody, we have two totally different ideas about the church. He said, I believe the church is a magnificent ship crossing through the seas of history. Oh, going through many of the storms, and other ships are wrecked, and we take on board all the people, and while the church will ultimately sail into port with its sails torn, it will have the whole world on board. 
Well, Mr. Moody believes that the church is a ship that's going to be wrecked and that we must save as many out of the wreck as possible before the wreck takes place. And that's exactly the difference in concept between the two schools of thought. And I definitely belong to the one that believes that civilization, humanity, even the church, is going to be wrecked. And that when the Lord Jesus Christ comes, as he put it, when the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith on earth. As it was in the days of Noah, as it was in the days of Sodom, as it was in the days of Lot, so shall it be when the Son of Man cometh. Now, when we discover this is true, what is the message for today? How can you and I be of good cheer in the midst of the possibilities of the total wreckage of our civilization? For our civilization is doomed to judgment. The Lord God Almighty is going to put his foot on the civilizations of this world, and he's going to squash them, as he describes it himself, like a bunch of grapes. The grapes of wrath, and he's going to judge. You see, it's a very terrible thing, but there are a lot of people that think that God ought to be very pleased with the United States. Oh, God, you are, this is the American way. Just think positively, take God into partnership in your business, and you'll all have extra refrigerators and 24-inch screen televisions. Uh, oh, they'll be filled from the television screen, there's no doubt of the fact. And there'll be lots of liquor in most of the refrigerators, and so on. But nevertheless, this is the American way of life. It's true that Hoffa's running the labor rackets. And it's true that there's a lot of these other things, but after all, God, this is the great American way of life. Surely this is the finest group of people that ever lived on the face of the earth. And never have so many sinned against so much. The amount of sin in the United States against God is greater and much more subtle because it has come into the church. And many people think it's perfectly all right to have a church that's composed of people who've been married and divorced and married and divorced and that they ought to be made deacons and that everybody ought to forget the fact that they're living in adultery. And all these things, and we, we read about Hollywood and what happens there, and the church just goes on in its filthy way and needs cleansing. This is, I'm talking about the, the outward form of the church, not the inward body of Christ. Now, Paul, in the midst of a wreck, was able to say, be of good cheer. The world was not going to accept his advice. The world was not going to listen to him. The captain said, stay on. We will not believe this preacher that says things are going to be wrecked. But Paul was faithful to the word of God and said things are going to be wrecked. Now, in the circumstances, Paul's calm comfort seems to be a mockery. But it was nevertheless based on four things. And the, four, the help that I want to give you tonight, so that if you find yourself fleeing to Arkansas to escape a bomb, uh, or that you're running ahead of it, uh, of the fallout, or if you find yourself in the midst of terrible conditions, you can simply say, it's all right, Lord. You can have it, and it will be all right. We'll walk with thee, and we know that you can do more for us running away than we can do staying home alone. And maybe it's going to be proven for many people that you learn the meaning of the word in. For it says in Romans 8, what shall separate us from the love of God? Tribulation, famine, nakedness, peril, the sword, no in these things, we are more than conquerors. Now, I know a great many English friends who went through the blitz in London and knew what it was to try to work all day fast asleep because they'd been up all night fighting fires, or they'd been down when blocks of buildings had gone up and the fires were there and they'd spent the night in the rubble. And it was very, very terrible. But yet they said the Lord was very near to us and we learned that he could be in the bombings. And it happened to the Christians in London, and it happened to Christians in other parts of the world, and it may well happen to us, and we must be spiritually prepared. 
Now, the reason that Paul was able to say, be of good cheer, was founded on four reasons. The first was that he was conscious of the presence of God in the face of danger. He was conscious of the presence of God in the face of danger. It says, this very night there stood by me an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. God was there with him and God talked to him. So when the trouble comes, if you know that the Lord God Almighty has talked to you and has told you to be of good cheer, you can go around and you can say, be of good cheer. The Lord's still running things. He knows what he's doing. He's never made a mistake. The Lord God Almighty is on the throne. And very, very definitely, you can be of good cheer. Be of good cheer. God stood by me. This is the fulfillment of what Jesus had said. Lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the age. And the Lord Jesus Christ will be with you in time of trouble. This had happened in Corinth in the 18th chapter of Acts in verses 9 and 10. The Lord stood by him and said, I am with thee. It happened in Jerusalem in chapter 23 and verse 11. God stood by and said, I am with thee. It happened here on the sea in chapter 27. It happened in 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 17. Before Nero, he said, all men have forsaken me, but the Lord stood by me and will deliver me, and the Lord delivered me. Now, here is the reason you and I can be absolutely calm in the presence of all difficulty. Now, I would be the most happy man in all the world if the bombs never fell, if something would happen, if Khrushchev would have a stroke and die, and if some more moderate man would come in, and if we should go so far ahead in missiles that the Russians would be scared ever to do anything, and if we could have peace for another 50 years, I'd be the most happy man in the world. You say, well, in that case, we won't need your sermon tonight. Well, I'll tell you when you'll need it for. You'll need it when the doctor says, I'm very sorry, but the biopsy shows that your growth is malignant and that you have a cancer. Or when you have something happen to some loved one in your family, or when the telephone rings and says, there's been an accident. We need these things, these times of comfort. We pray for the pastor of this church tonight with a little girl with two torn tendons in her arm at the hospital. You see, the Lord stands by, and we're all of us going to have times of trouble. So this is good. This is good not only for the bombs, but it's good for the cancer or the accident. It's good for what life has, because life in Atlanta, don't forget, if you live 30 years, the next 30 years in Atlanta, even though everything is happy and prosperous and your refrigerators are full and your automobiles have more chromium on them and, and are wider and the sins are higher and they have more lights than a Christmas tree. And even though all of this takes place, and even though your television screens get wider and they invent a lot of things, even if somebody says, I'll see you at the 4 o'clock pad, space launching, I'll come back and call on you when I come home from the moon. Even if all these things happen, dear friends, and everything is lovely, I'll tell you what's going to happen. People are still going to go to the cemetery and bury loved ones. And people are going to grow old. And the youngest and most beautiful girls in this room are going to suddenly say, this is what's here. There's a wrinkle. And you are going to grow old and these things are going to happen. Your youth will fade and these things. It's not a catastrophe. Don't pull it out. You don't diet. Just, just say, the Lord God Almighty knows what he's doing. And and you discover that you can grow old along with the Lord Jesus Christ being in your heart. So Paul's first, first point was, the Lord stood by me. You see, in Hebrews 13, 5, he said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. In the Greek, there is a triple negative in that verse. 
a passage that's stronger in the Greek grammar than anything else to say, no, no, no. I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. And the man that wrote how firm a foundation when he came to the last verse was really translating Hebrews 13.5. The soul that on Jesus hath leaned for repose, I will not, I will not desert to his foes. That soul, though all hell should endeavor to shake, I'll never, no, never, no, never forsake. God three times promises that he will not forsake his people. You know that hymn, How Firm a Foundation, has in it some magnificent verses. You ought to learn it, by the way. If you heard me preach very often, it wouldn't be long before you'd hear me take off against flibbity-jibbity choruses. I don't like doggerel in church music. I, I, I wish we could get back to the great hymns of the church. Oh, my. When I hear somebody wanting to sing in a church, he saves me so neatly, so completely and completely, and all the rest of his junk. Uh, I, I just don't want it. I'd much rather sing these great hymns. Oh, could I speak the matchless words. Oh, could I shine the glory forth, sound the glory forth within my Savior shine. I'd soar and touch the heavenly strings and vie with Gabriel while he sings in notes almost divine. You know, I've been preaching 400 times a year for the last 32 years. And one of the things I've done in the course of that time, I decided as I had to sit 12 times a week, 12 times a week for the church meeting and listen to the preliminaries, I decided to learn all the good hymns I could. So every time they sang a worthwhile hymn, I'd start to memorize it. And the result is that I have memorized hundreds and hundreds of hymns. First verse, second verse, third verse, fourth verse, fifth verse, if possible. And oh, there are some magnificent verses. And mine is so that if you grow blind, you'll have them. So that if you're ever put in prison by the communist commissar because you've stood faithful or something, that you'll be able to sing and not be brainwashed. Because you know, it's wonderful if you ever... I, I've planned what to do in case they ever tried to brainwash me. Because I went to Russia once, and I had been planning to go to China some recently, before the KMO and that thing stopped it. And I just began to think, uh, suppose I was in Chow prison, uh, what would I do when they came and submitted me to rights and questions and questions? And, and I, I began to think of all the hymns. I, I'd try to write a hymn book. I'd try to take and write down all the verses of all the hymns that I could remember. But, oh, how wonderful it is. Fear not, I am with thee. Oh, be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will still give thee aid. I'll strengthen thee, help thee. Yea, cause thee to stand upheld by my gracious, omnipotent hand. When through fiery trials thy pathway shall lie, my grace all-sufficient shall be thy supply. The flame shall not hurt thee. I only design thy dross to consume and thy gold to refine. When through the deep waters I call thee to go, the rivers of sorrow shall not thee overflow, for I will be with thee thy troubles to bless and sanctify to thee thy deepest distress. Brother, you know, if you can sing that in prison or when you're blind, if you can sing that when you're walking from here to Chattanooga in high heel shoes after the bomb has hit and they say it's blowing towards you from Savannah and you start going, oh, I tell you, dear friend, it'll be wonderful, wonderful for you to know these great truths. Wonderful when you get so sick with a cancer that you can't hold a whole book and that you just can take one sheet out of the Bible and it can't even hold that, it'll be wonderful to be able to hum these great, great hymns. I am with thee. And this is why I want you to get this. When Paul said, all hope was abandoned, be of good cheer. You will be wrecked 
be of good cheer. And the first reason that he could say that was because of the presence of God. The second reason that you and I can be comforted in the midst of trouble is the great fact that we belong to God. For Paul said, the God whom I am and whom I serve stood by me this night. The God whom I am. Do you belong to him? You sing a hymn, I don't like it nearly as much as the great hymns. Da, 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 da. Now I belong to him. Now I belong to Jesus. That's not nearly as, as strong a hymn as, Oh, could I speak the matchless words? Oh, could I sound the glories forth within my Savior shine? But that would do for me as he walked along above Rome and found that there was no more gas, that you had to go over the mountain because they wouldn't let you use the highway. You see, you could go on singing, Oh, now I belong to Jesus. And, and he knows this fact. How do you belong to him? How do you belong to the Lord Jesus Christ? The God whose I am. The Revised Standard Version translates it, the God to whom I belong. Well, first of all, I'm his as the bride is to the bridegroom. It says in the Song of Solomon, my beloved is mine and I'm his. You have no idea in the Hebrew how many, many, many lines there are that use the intimacies of the love of a husband and wife to illustrate our union with the Lord. This is true in the New Testament, too, when it says this is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church, the husband and the wife, the picture of Christ and the church. Oh, how wonderful this great fact is. We belong to him as the bride belongs to the bridegroom. In the second place, we belong to him as a child belongs to the father. God created this example in order that you and I might understand our relationship to him. I'm quite convinced that whenever a baby is born, that just about the time they cut the umbilical cord that binds the baby to the mother, God creates a sort of an invisible cord that binds the baby to the father. Oh, I've seen this happen in such a wonderful way. I remember a fellow came into my church. First time he ever came in, he was drunk. He was working as a bodyguard with a labor union racketeer. He was making $300 a week. And God remarkably saved him. He quit that $300 a week job and went to work as doorman outside of an undertaker's parlor, dressed in a long coat for $50 um, a week. And it was so galling to him to have to give up everything. Well, after he'd been saved a while, he got a job on the Philadelphia Police Force. He's since then won the prize for bravest man in the citizen of Philadelphia. And he's a deacon in my church. Well, I can remember when this young fellow first came into my church. He always sat in the gallery in a certain place. And one time, about six months after he'd been there, he came to me one day and he said, Doc, what would you think about me getting married? I said, well, does it pay you? Well, I said, for six months you've been sitting up in the gallery. And about five weeks ago, I saw you come in, look all around, and go and sit down over here. And then the next week you came down and you sat all over here. I said, it took you four weeks to get in the same pew with us. He said, gee, Doc, you don't miss much, do you? I said, well, I am an overseer. That's the meaning of the word bishop, apiscopos. It means an overseer, and I oversee my congregation. And, well, they got married. Well, you know, after they'd been married about a year and a half, they were going to have a baby. And one Sunday morning, I came in to church, and he was in my office, grinning from ear to ear. It was a boy. I said, Ralph, I hear it's a boy. Isn't that wonderful? Yes, he said. Doc, I want to ask you a question. How 
How much does it cost to give a boy a college education? <laughs> oh, it was so wonderful. What had happened? A father had been born. A father had been born. It's a tremendously important thing. One of the finest things a young mother can ever do for the world is to have her husband become a father. Because immediately it transforms his nature and he begins to understand, that's my boy, that's my boy. And, and he teaches him to walk and he watches him grow up and, and he learns this great fact. The Lord God loves me more than I love my boy. Oh, when you understand that. So Paul was able in the midst of the storm to say, cheer up, the Lord to whom I belong. I belong to him as a bride belongs to the bridegroom. And the husband is going to take care of his wife. He's going to stand between her and the blast. We belong to him as a father, as a child to the father. And a father is going to stand in between the child. I saw the other day, someplace I forget, I think it was in Memphis, uh, a picture that was a terrible picture. They found the body of a man and he was lying out in the forest in the woods. And he had, they'd been lost in the woods, and he and his child had died. But the child's body was under his. The father had protected it and warmed the child to the end. And this is the way the Lord is with us. He's going to take care of us. We belong to him. Not only do we belong to him as a bride to the bridegroom, we belong to him as a child belongs to the father. We belong to him as a sheep belongs to the shepherd. He calls us his sheep, my sheep. My sheep hear my voice. I know them, and they follow me. You know, that's wonderful. We have some friends. We've just been holding meetings out in Texas. And in between some big meetings, after I've been preaching 12 or 15 times a week, I like to go out to West Texas and spend a few days with some friends of mine out there. There's Southern Baptists out there, and they've got the largest sheep ranch in the world. And we go out on that sheep ranch and, and see these hundreds and hundreds of thousands of acres of ground with thousands of sheep in it. And their sheep are the most beautiful sheep. In fact, their barn inside, they have more than 2,000 blue ribbons that they have won in stock shows as having the best sheep in the world. And there they are, more than 2,000 blue ribbons. Those sheep, you never saw anything like it. They're taken care of. And you take any one of those big sheep, the showing sheep that win the prizes in Houston Fat Stock Show and in San Angelo and in Chicago, you lift up the ear, and they're all mixed. Every one of the sheep is mixed. And they have a little machine. When a baby lamb is born, they just take, and as it's standing by the mother, they look at the mix in her ear, and they're able to look in the book and know that she's number so-and-so, and that the lamb was number so-and-so, so they mix the baby's ear, so that when it grows up, it's got the marks that show its family tree. Well, you know, I tell you this, we're the Lord's sheep, and he's marked us not only on the ear, but on the foot. He said, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And it's a wonderful thing that we belong to him, and that we are his sheep, and that we're marked on the ear, and we're marked on the foot. And if anybody says, I belong to Jesus, and does not follow him, he's a liar. Because my sheep hear my voice, I know them, and they follow me. Another's voice they will not follow. So if you find somebody that says, oh yes, I'm a Christian, but I'm now, I'm now following unity, and I'm now following Christian science, and I'm, I'm very much interested in divine science, you know that they're following the devil. Now, listen to me, dear friends. If I say this, 
Don't anybody say, oh, he's narrow. Yes, I am. Jesus said straight and narrow as the gate. You can either be to find it. It's just as clear as that. We belong to him, and if we belong to him, we're marked on the ear and the foot. Paul said, but God stood by me, whose I am. How do you belong to him? Why, I'm bride to his bridegroom. I'm son to his being the father. I'm sheep to my master, the shepherd. Not only that, but we're his property. It says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 19, you are not your own. And in the Greek, it has to be translated, you are not your own property. You are bought with a price. I once heard the story of an old colored man. He was a godly fellow, and they said to old Rastus, what do you do when you're tempted? He said, I just looks up to heaven and says, Lord, your property's in danger. Well, dear friends, you can't beat that. You can't beat that. Lord, your property's in danger. Be not dismayed, whatever betide. God will take care of you. Beneath his wings of love abide. God will take care of you. God will take care of you through every day, all along the way. He will take care of you. God will take care of you. Not only are we his as bride, as son, as sheep, as property, we're his by the gift of God. John 17, verse 19, verse 9 and 10, Jesus said, I am praying, I am praying for those whom thou hast given me, for they are thine. All thine are mine, and mine are thine, and I am glorified in them. We belong to him. We're his purchased property. We belong to him. God the Father gave us to Jesus Christ. And because of this fact that he gave us to Jesus Christ, he is going to take care of us. After all, I'm his by creation, I'm his by choice, I'm his by redemption, and I'm his by keeping power day by day. How firm a foundation you think to the Lord. You know, over in England, they never sing two verses and omit the third and sing the last. In England, if you go to a church and they got a hymn that's got nine verses printed, they sing nine verses. They sing them all, every one. And in an English hymn book, if you go to an English service, they've got hundreds of hymns that have got five, six, and seven verses, and they sing them all. And some of the ones we leave out in America are so wonderful. How firm a foundation you think to the Lord. In the English book has as its sixth stanza. In down to old age all my people shall prove my sovereign, eternal, unchangeable love. And when hoary hairs shall their temples adorn, like lambs they shall still in my bosom be born. Isn't that the way the Lord takes care of us? We belong to him. We belong to him. Now... You just stop and think what people do in Atlanta to protect their property. They build fences, they build walls, they build hedges around their property. They erect buildings and vaults. They post guards, they set alarm bells, and they paint warning signs. Now, will God do that for his property? I think how many things people do to try to protect their property. Keep off, no trespassing. But trespassers will be prosecuted. Why? Why, they're protecting their property. Well, God Almighty is going to protect us. We belong to him. Will God do less for his property? Why, it says the very hairs of your head are numbered. I heard a wonderful story recently. There was a little girl whose father was a train conductor. And one night, the train was very late. And when they got in, he didn't make out his report. He just took everything and went over to the house. And the next morning at breakfast, the little girl got her father's punch. 
ticket punch, and she began to punch holes in the piece of paper, and here was all the pile of the tickets. And she was looking, and there were a hundred, two hundred railroad tickets. And she asked her daddy to explain it. They were all numbered. Every ticket had a number. So he was looking down, he explained it, why they were numbered. They knew then what place they were sold, what man had sold them, and they were able to check up. So after family worship, the mother went upstairs and found the little girl, and she pulled a hair out of her head. She had it under a magnifying glass by an electric light, and she was looking and looking, and the mother says, what are you doing? She says, I'm looking for the number, because it said this morning the hairs of our head are numbered, and I'm trying to find the number on my head. Well, you know, that's wonderful when you stop to think of it. It didn't mean it that way. But believe me, dear friends, God, just think of the fact that God loves us so much that the very hairs of our head are numbered. You never loved your baby enough to count its hairs. Well, you said, couldn't. It's impossible. But God the Father loves you enough to have counted your hair. That's how much he loves you. He loves you more than you love your children. And he's watching over you. And all these things are there. So Paul was able, in the midst of the left, to say, be of good cheer. God is with me. I belong to him. And the rest comes very swiftly now. The third reason why Paul could say this was the fact that he was on business for God. He was God's servant. Now, if you're in the will of God, God has to take care of you. Naturally, if you've gone off to a big city and have gone off to a gambling club and you're on your own and you're trying to uh, see the bright light, God hasn't promised to take care of you if you get out of his will and are running away. But if you stay on his business, if you're on your way to work for him, if you're in his will and doing what he wants to do, he's got to take care of you. The laws of Georgia and the laws of the United States are this, that an employee who is working for his company, the company is responsible for him. If he's hurt while on company business, the company insurance has to take care of him. Well, this is true for God. If you're living for him, you're insured. If you're living for him, he's promised to take care of you. My God shall supply all your needs. God will take care of you. This is absolutely true. Oh, my, how wonderful it is to know this. I must go on and finish now, and I come to the last point so we can pronounce the benediction. And here was the fourth reason why Paul was able to be of calm and of good cheer in the midst of the storm. One, God's presence with him. Two, he belonged to God. Three, he was on duty for God. And fourth, he was fully convinced of the faithfulness of God and was sustained by that conviction. For when he said, be of good cheer, he then said to them, so take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. Paul, God said to Paul, this is the way it's going to happen. This is the way it's going to happen. So Paul got up and he said, I have faith that it will be exactly as I have been told. God is faithful. Don't ever think there's going to be any surprises. You're not suddenly going to learn that something is worse. Jesus said, if it were not so, I would have told you. I don't know if you ever heard the funny phonograph record. 20 or 30 years ago, there was a comic record. That's how the dog died. Did you ever hear that? Well, it was up in Kentucky, and old Mark Clem, he got off the railroad station, and he was met by Rastus and the two-horse carriage and started to drive up the big estate. And when the man got there, he said to his servant, he said, well, Rastus, he said, how? How's everything home? Well, everything's fine. Everything's perfect. Everything's lovely. Master, everything is wonderful, except that the dog died. The dog, you mean? 
say to my dog, yes, sir, he is dead, sir. Well, well how did he die? Well, sir, he, he, he died from eating too much horse flesh. Eating too much horse flesh? Well, well what horse died? Well, your, your hunter, your hunter horse died. You mean my fine prize hunter died? Yes, sir, but everything else is fine. Everything is all right. Well, how did he die? How did the horse die? Well, sir, he, he was trapped when the barn burned down. Well, the barn burned down. Yes, sir, he's trapped, but everything's all right. Everything's fine. Everything's fine, except that the dog died, and the horse died, and the barn burned down. Well, how did the barn burn down? Well, it caught the sparks from the house. Well, <laughs> well, <laughs> he just goes on and on and on and on. And all the things that happened, and, and what caused the house to burn down, and what caused the rest and the rest. But everything's all right, no doubt. And each moment he was getting a bigger and a bigger and a bigger shock. Now listen, my dear friend, it is not going to be that way with God. If it were not so, I would have told you. You know the worst. We who are born again know that we cannot go to hell. This is impossible. It would be as impossible for God to send a Christian to hell as it would for him to send Christ to hell. My sheep hear my voice, I know them, they follow me. I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall anyone pluck them out of my Father's hand. My, out of my hand. My Father which gave them is greater than all, and no one shall pluck them out of my Father's hand. I am the Father of one. So there's where we are, and someone said to little Willie, but aren't you afraid to slip through his fingers? And Willie said, I am one of the fingers. We've been made members of the body of Christ. And if we're in Christ and members of the body, we can be sure that everything God has said is going to come to pass. Now the Bible tells us there shall be wars and rumors of wars and nations shall rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And there will be abomination and there will be horror and there will be all these terrible things. But he says, I will be with thee. I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. I will be with thee. What shall separate us from the love of God? Tribulation, famine, no, in all these things we're more than conquerors. And I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creation shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Jesus Christ our Lord. Therefore be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Now, in a minute, we're going to pronounce the benediction, and you're on your way home. And if anybody says, gee, I'm scared, bombs and all these things, what am I going to do? No, that's not, if you're out of the will of God, if ever that happens, because you're not trusting God. If you think that anything can ever touch you until it is passed through the will of God. The Bible doesn't say we think that maybe all things work together for good, but it says we know that all things work together for good. My wife and I, as we travel together a great deal, every once in a while something will happen. We're passing to go someplace, and our handle will break on a suitcase, and we're inclined to say, oh, look at that devil. And then the other one is always this way. But the other one will say, if, it's, if I have suddenly complained, she'll say, and if she has suddenly complained, I'll say, well, we think that all things work together for good. And that brings us up with a short, sharp hold right away. We know that all things work together for good. Don't forget, there isn't an automobile built that can wreck you and an airplane built that can spin you. If your son is in the army, there isn't a bullet molded that can hit him until God is through with his witness. Nothing can touch us. A germ can't touch us till God lets it pass. A virus may be so small they can't see it with an electronic microscope, 
but it cannot lodge in us until God is ready to let it enter. There are undoubtedly germs and viruses, all types and kinds, but they cannot touch us until God is ready. So be of good cheer. The Lord is with us. We belong to him. We're living for him. And he is faithful.